Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. As always, you can see all of the creative work associated with our episodes and also listen to the interviews on our website for free. It is onstrategyshowcase.com. You can also connect uh, connect with all of our guests through the uh, site. Today, we're going to be doing uh, classic episode number three. This is for VW. For the campaign that's typically referred to as the sort of think small campaign, although we debate it in the episode here about whether that was really what this brand platform was built around. But it is a great example. Um, and I mentioned in the interview about the fact that we did a recent uh, interview with Johannes Leonardo, who are currently managing the uh, creative product for the brand here in the United States. And we did an episode with them on the more recent work. Now, what I always loved about that show was the fact that you can see the same common strategic thread throughout all of the campaigns for VW right back to this, what we'll label the original campaign. And it's the idea that um, that VW is for those who are frustrated with the status quo. And they frame that beautifully at, at Johannes Leonardo uh, in the present day as that VW drivers are drivers of change. And I love that simplicity to that. And I think that's um, that you can see when you look back at all of the campaigns that have become incredibly famous over the decades, that they're all rooted in that same sort of cultural observation, that moment in social movement for that particular time. And it, it's really terrific. Uh, this is an interview, again, with Faisal Sadiq. Uh, Sadiqi, he is our uh, co-host for the series. And we talk about the work done back in the 1960s uh, for uh, VW by uh, DDB here in Chicago. And actually, no, it was actually done in New York. Excuse me. I would encourage everybody to go to the site and see the creative work. It is very famous work, obviously. We all feel we're very familiar with it. I think it's important to see it again if you have not seen it to really appreciate that at that time when work was was relatively conservative, when consumerism, there was mass consumerism, when advertising was arguably at its earliest stages or at many of its earliest stages, that this work was so fresh and so different that it is really worth sort of thinking about it in that context. So that is, uh, that's all I got for me. So um, enjoy this. This is VW Classic. It's the Think Small campaign from DDB in New York. Enjoy. What was happening at this time? Because we're talking about the late 50s and heading into the early 1960s. Uh, what was what was going on, Faisal? So around this time was the big, burgeoning, growing middle class in America. It was somewhat conservative. It was somewhat conformist. It was all about consumption, and it was the American dream. America was doing great things. People were moving out to the suburbs, getting their version of the American dream, getting the white picket fence, getting their the car of their dreams. Uh, and GDP was going up. Um, this was after the war. And so it was a great sense of optimism within the country, but equally, there's also a sense of conformity and conservatism. And then at that time, Detroit was number one. So 95% of the cars uh, purchased in the US were coming from one of the big three or big four. Um, and the cars all um, reflected that sense of optimism and confidence. They were huge. They were V12s. They had long fins, if you can imagine, almost the Thunderbird, the space series. Uh, they had long fins with lots of chrome and elongated lights. And so it was a time, if you think of almost like the Brady Bunch, 
that was what the that was the what would the context, the social context that VW found itself in and need to make inroads in. And so in at this at this time for for a point of reference, this is baby boomers uh, were born starting in 1946. So they were sort of teenagers coming into their uh, driving age, uh, roughly at this point in time. And you were also dealing with an awful lot of, um, which is pretty typical of of every generation, but it was pretty pointed uh, at this particular time. You were looking at sort of a cultural revolution and an awful lot of change happening in this country and um, lots of things happening in, in, in the latter part of this, which would be uh, civil rights, women's rights, um, uh, the Vietnam War, um, Martin Luther King, the Cold War. There was a a massive amount of uncertainty and a strong sense of nationalism in terms of American patriotism, but a lot of sort of fear underlying the security that had been developed for many years, particularly post-World War II. Um, So there's a lot of things going on here that uh, VW was able to take um, advantage of, but there wasn't there wasn't really an a sort of a uh, a foreign car market in the U.S. This was dominated by American made, right? That's right, and I think we have to remember between 1950 and 1954, or around those times, that was the time of McCarthyism. This was a virulent yes, yes, communism. You know, yeah. Communism. There's a communist under every rock, nook and cranny. Uh, people were being taken into court, names were being besmudged. So anything foreign at that time was uh, persona non grata. So during this time, of course, as you just mentioned, it was all about bigger, bigger cars, bigger, uh, bigger goals, uh, American exceptionalism. And um, then there's something going on in Germany. What's happening there in automotive? In Germany, so after the war, the German economy is in absolute tatters. And it's the allied powers who had a vested interest in kickstarting it again. And so one industry they looked at in particular was car manufacturing. Um, And so they restarted the VW factory in Volkswagen. And so going back a bit, um, the VW, they only made one car, it was the the Beetle and the name VW was uh, the car of the people was designed by Ferdinand Porsche in the 1930s, and then it was uh, co-opted or became the pet project of another well-known German uh, called Hitler, (laughs) who wanted a car for the people. He wanted to be economical. He wanted it to drive at 100 kilometers an hour, be cheap with interchangeable parts. So that was the background. Then the war happened. After the war, the Allies wanted to kickstart the German economy, and so they started producing cars. And it was the Beetle became... um, started selling really well within Germany, and then they even allowed it to be exported within Europe. So actually, I, I just uh, looked this up this morning. I hope it's right, but because uh, you can't trust everything you read on Wikipedia. But a Volkswagen, uh, when it's translated, actually means people's car. I didn't know uh, that, man. That's true. Is it right? Correct. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the Volks is the people. Yeah, the people's car. Um, and so it, it did become a pet project for Hitler. Uh, and this was, if you, if, if you recall your history, which for me is a bit foggy, but this was after the Weimar Republic, the German economy was, was doing really bad. There was really high inflation. And so the Nazis wanted to kickstart that by 
by investing in lots of projects. And one of those was a strong and stable automotive sector. And so um, the VW did become the people's car in the years before World War II in Germany. I think it was in 1949. We're going to move away from history pretty quickly here. But um, in the U.S., the car uh, arrives in 1949. It only sells two vehicles in its first year. And it was positioned, strangely enough, as the uh, at that time, or it was described as the victory wagon. VW was talked in the U.S. as the victory wagon, VW. Um, but um, didn't really begin to take a foothold until 1955, which was six years later. Now, imagine this sort of a situation. You are, as, a, as an agency, you're presented with um, a big challenge, which is how to sell a small Okay, it's small, right? Unusual looking, number two problem. Foreign, number three uh, problem, car associated with Hitler. <laughs> Four, and you've got to sell it in America post-World War II, okay? So think about that as a challenge that a client comes to you with. So so let's talk about um, let's talk about where um where those initial discussions start happening with agencies and, and why they're happening. So the so VW sent a guy called Carl Hahn to the US. They were noticing that their sales were were plateauing a bit and so they decided, you know, Yavol, we're going to advertise so he had to choose an ad agency, did his usual rounds of Madison Avenue, was not impressed by anything he saw. It was mediocre. All the advertising for for cars back then um, felt very, came very much from the school of Ross or Reeves. It was very repetitive. Um, we just hit the consumer with the same message again and again. It's not inventive. It's not creative. You know, faster, 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 uh, cheaper, 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 stuff like that. And um, Interestingly, uh, DDB wasn't on his list, but I think this is a, a nice takeaway for any small agency out there. But the way they got in was they had actually done some work for a local car dealer in Queensboro, New York, who happened to sell VWs. And, and that car dealer um, really was very much impressed by the work and then made the introduction. So Carl, uh, Carl, Carl Ahan met uh, Bill Burnback. Bill Birnbach didn't produce any spec work. Spec work is kind of like speculative work, what he thought VW could do, and said Bill just showed him some of their own past work. And we have to remember, uh, DDB was a was a kind of small Jewish agency. They'd been around for 10 or 15 years, and a lot of their clients were kind of uh, were small, quirky underdogs themselves. It was Auerbach's, which was so the... Bill Burn, Bertel, uh, Bill Birnbach was Jewish? He was. And he's being asked to to promote this car. This is brilliant. There's another freaking hur hurdle. <laughs> oh, yeah. And jo George Lois actually said the the big challenge they had was that they had to they had to sell a Nazi car in a Jewish town. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the other thing before we go on there, I wanted to point out the fact because I think it ties back to some of the other classics, the themes that we've heard. This ambassador that VW has sent over to search for an agency, he's gone through a number of agencies before he gets to DDB. And um, why is he still searching? What is he not finding that he's looking for? Because this is the same thing that happened uh, with with Avis, and it's the same thing that happened with City. That there was a client who had something in mind other than what they were seeing. Well, I think for all of the self perception of Madison Avenue to be creative and different, 
from an outsider, everything he saw on Madison Avenue followed a similar formula. It was completely fashionable. They all copied themselves. They all it all looked the same. And car advertising, particularly, um, was very simplistic. It was very rudimentary. It spoke down to the customer. It almost felt like you were entering a car showroom. You know, you can imagine it. There's neon lights. There's chrome bumpers. There's sleazy salespeople. There's discounts. There's think flags waving, and all of the advertising reflected that. And he felt it incredibly stultifying. You know, you can imagine a European being perhaps a bit more progressive, a bit more, a bit ahead. And and he, what he found it, we found it suffocating. He found it boring. And um, I'm not sideways talk, but I wonder if you'd feel the same thing today. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, we touched on this during Avis also. But when he approached uh, DDB, unlike other agencies, uh, Birnbach and the crew did not pitch for the business. There was no pitching. There was conversation. On what basis do you feel they won? Was it the Avis work? Because Avis had already happened, and they'd already set a precedent for how they could take a negative and turn it into a positive. Do you think that or, or any other factors had an influence that you're aware of? I think from what we read, he was really impressed. Art Carl Ahan was very impressed by Bill's just honest approach to advertising. I think what he saw was a track record of working with certain brands and underdog brands that were a bit quirky, didn't have the best product, wasn't super fashionable. And they spoke about the virtues of that product by almost embracing those blemishes. If you think about uh, Levi's bread, uh, you don't have to be Jewish to, to love Levi's. It was a small bread manufacturer with a small niche audience, and, it, and they proclaimed it as such. They didn't pretend it was something else. Obviously, we talked about uh, Avis last time. They were number two. They embraced that challenger spirit. Same thing with Our Box. Our Box was not was a was a clothing retailer in New York. It wasn't the most expensive. It wasn't the cheapest, uh, and they made a virtue of that uh, and, and that thrift. So I think what if I was him. I would perhaps see kind of a red thread of a very honest approach to advertising that didn't mean boring, but drew wit and intelligence from an absolute honest assessment of the product and not trying to run away from what it was. So what do we know about what uh, DDD, uh, DDB did uh, once they won the business? Well, structurally, the first innovation was that Bill Burnback put art directors and copywriters in the same room together. So right. originally, art directors were second-class citizens, even though they, they were on a floor above. But it was the copywriter who'd come up with a concept, and they'd roll it up, put it in the tube, send it up, and then the art director would kind of fill in, fill in the blanks. Um, so the first innovation was that. And... Um, and then, so when they started the DDB account, they did the usual thing, which was they immersed in in the world of the client. They had it. They flew over to Germany. Uh, they toured the factory. It's remarkably similar to what we were talking about in Avis, which was um, while touring the factory, while speaking to the people on the factory floor. Bill Burnback was very much taken by the honesty and earnestness within which they made this car. And I think if one of the things the listeners should probably take away from this was the VW was, um, it was a simple car. Uh, it didn't have frills. It didn't have, um, I don't whatever the frills were in the 1950s, late 50s and 60s. It didn't have chrome kind of uh, buttons or it didn't have the fanciest technology, but it was built solid. 
And so you'd get 32 miles a gallon. Uh, you would never have to change the oil. They never changed the design of the car because it was always the same. So there's no sense of planned obsolescence. The 1963 was exactly like the 1964. And in those qualities, and it had a funny face. It was kind of short and stumpy. And in those qualities, um, what I, I suppose what Bill saw was, was just a very, it was an ugly car, but it works. And you could create a, an affectionate story about this little bug that could. And I think that was the genesis. Um, for the idea and for the creative platform. And that came from really digging deep into the client and, 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 and their world. I would love to have seen the research from back then in terms of the perceptions of this vehicle, the perceptions of its German heritage, its tie to Hitler, its, its, um, it being a foreign, unusual-looking small car. I mean, the Asian brands that came later faced a, an awful lot of resistance in terms of their acceptance here in the here in the US I'm not sure if that existed back then I would love to have known what the the huge perceptional challenges were beyond beyond the functional do, do you have any any sense of what they might have been or where they, if they even existed because maybe we felt differently towards or at least the mass the the the, the population in mass in the US felt different towards Europe and Germany because of the success of the war and uh, maybe there was a different attitude towards it than what there ended up being later with the Asian brands when there was a sense that they were stealing jobs from Americans, that they weren't American cars. And it, it really resulted in this sense of enhanced patriotism towards GM and Ford and Chrysler. But, but I'm not sure whether that happened with the bug, with the bug just sort of seen as this such a small non-player that it wasn't worth resisting. Well, I always think it helps if you're the victor in a war. <laughs> And uh, you're a victor in the war, and then 15 years later, you're the world's superpower. So I think if there was any sense of grace in winning, uh, you know, I wouldn't put it past the American public. Um, and so I think there's two, you, you hear two different accounts. On one account, you hear that VW in the uh, early 50s was positioned as kind of a second car for the family. There was some really kind of patronizing line I saw in one of the earlier advertising where it said something kind of like, it's a great car for the wife who wants to poodle around town. So that tells me, you know, if they're running it with that line, that tells me there isn't a massive preoccupation with their German heritage. That said, Julian Koenig, uh, no, sorry, not Julian Koenig, uh, Helmut Krohn, who is the art director uh, for DDB on the project, was absolutely convinced that this was a toxic brand. And he said, you know, it, it, very much had Nazi connotations. And one of the first concepts he had for the ad campaign was nothing like what we what it ended up to be. He, he was saying that we need to get uh, a pinup um, a, a pinup movie star, create a jingle, something kind of like you can drive around, you can drive the USA in your Chevrolet. That was a that was a kind of um, a really famous campaign at the time for Chevy. And we need to do that for for VW. We need to hide its German European qualities at all costs. So, what does the brand do, Faisal, in the face of all of that? What do they decide to do strategically? I think, from what I'm seeing, I think what they do is that they embrace the truth of what what it is, and they what they ultimately do is they unlock what is what they unlock the hidden advantage of this product, and what they do is they dramatize 
that hidden advantage in a way that has charm and in a way that has wit. I would also venture to say that they built a car in a weird way in their own image that reflected their own values. And we, and we poo-poo that now. We always say, you know, you are not the consumer. But it was very much, a, it was a New York attitude. It was a late 50s attitude. It was a bit more progressive. It was almost non-consumptive. And I think you can see a lot of those people, Helmut Krohn, Julian Kronick, in those ads. Um, so it wasn't trying to reach out and, and try to hit some, some mythical consumer in middle America, they made a bet that there were a lot more people like them. And, and, that, and that trend and that, that thought and those types of uh, values would become more widespread. So I think that what we were talking about earlier, which is, which is a smart strategic thing to do, and it's, again, it's not unusual, um, but it's the idea of becoming sort of an expression of individualism. It's sort of this idea of being a vehicle for the time. So we talked earlier about this sort of counterculture movement that was happening, civil rights, hippie movement, music, Woodstock, women's rights, Vietnam War. These were all counterculture movements led by young people. And then, so I, it, it seems that what they did is they began to target that younger person looking for individual self-expression. They didn't want to drive what their parents drove. They didn't want to drive. Uh, they were looking for symbols of, of individualism and this car being one of them. Um, so it seems like they targeted that sort of individual that's sort of jaded with the status quo, right? I think so, but I, if I'm being honest, I think that that's a slight kind of planning methodology that is that we're post-rationalizing back onto them a bit. Um, Possibly, in the sense, yeah. in the sense that I think it was a copywriter and an art director, and I don't, I don't really know the extent to which they segmented the market, chose a segment, and so consciously um, produced a niche strategy. My feeling is that they intuitively let the product drive a lot of those decisions and then applied kind of some of their own thoughts on, 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 on culture and values and, and, and their own voice to it. But that could, that could be a differing opinion. No, no, you, you, you could be right because it's, it wasn't a brand that when it went to market um, was signaling to that sort of counterculture crowd, it, it just seems that it became that over time. Because initially, its ads were were unique and distinctive, but they weren't. Um, they were they were trying to establish an alternative style vehicle into the American market rather than presenting it as being a signal of counterculture at the time. So I think you I think you make a good point. They managed to capture a voice that sold to people in a way that respected their intelligence. It was a soft sale. It, it, it understood that with wit and with charm, I'm going to sell you this product. And both parties are in on the game. And I think for me, that was quite revolutionary. My opinion would be that may, uh, purchasing a VW was, a, at that time, a Beetle, was a deliberate act of defiance. Are of individualism. So it may not have been that I'm part of a counterculture, that I'm sort of against what's happening uh, from an overall societal point of view, but I'm definitely making a statement in the same way that certain people who bought a, a Mini uh, more recent years or somebody who bought a Subaru 
uh, over the last 20 years. It was a deliberate sort of statement of what you don't stand for. Um, it may not be that your entire world and life is revolved around protest and civil rights, but there are an awful lot of what might be labeled as straight-laced people living in suburbia uh, that felt uh, isolated from the sort of mainstream conventional uh, type of materialistic life, and they wanted to make a statement. So maybe that became the beachhead, so to speak, and that it later evolved into being more of a symbol of of a broader definition of counterculture. I want. I wonder if that if that holds water. I'm not sure, but but I think your point is right that that it didn't come out as being uh, an anti an, an anti um, vehicle as much as it came out to being a, a, a you know a unique alternative. I think you're right. So let's move on to um, let's move on to some of the work. So the work, and one of the things I was thinking about last night was. Did, did did was think small what we would call today the brand platform or or was it just a headline on one of the most famous ads? Do you have any perspective on that? I think it's the latter. I think we yeah. we in our memories we kind of we remember that one, and I think we use that as a scaffolding to to talk about the entire campaign. Uh, but for me, this is a this is a campaign whose red thread is a certain tone and personality, rather than a single um, slogan or positioning statement. And so, what, how would you describe that thread or that personality? Uh, for me, I think it's charming, it's affectionate, and it it's it's the ugly car that could. And I think it's it's when you wrap all th- of those three things together you have a sufficient enough platform that lasted for decades. I think everything, if you think about the copy, you know, what the ad said, the design and the tone, everything was purposefully engineered to not look, sound, or feel like anything out there in popular culture or in car advertising. So in terms of the copy and and the things that they talked about, they talked about all of the things that you would never say about a car. So in one of the famous first ones or second ones called Lemon, they call their own car Lemon. And for those who don't know, Lemon is is a car that you write off. It has too many problems. And that was the headline. And they they, they use that as a kind of um, almost a self-effacing way of of, of talking about the reliability of the car. So if you can picture an ad, um, it's a beautiful kind of eight and a half by 11 there's a black and white picture of the VW on the top two thirds. On the bottom third, it just says lemon. And then in the body copy, it goes on to explain about how this car, the one that you're seeing, which looks fine, it looks beautiful, in fact, was rejected. And it didn't make the cut. And it didn't make the cut, not because the tires were broken, the speedometer wasn't working, there was a rip in the seats, none of that. But there was a one of the technicians on the production line in Wolfsburg noticed that there was a small scratch in the glove compartment and that's why it's a lemon and and what we're what they're basically saying is that our reliability and our 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 standards of quality are so high that that even you know a car that looks and feels that that is perfect we're gonna we're not going to sell that to the consumer so that's the first thing they would call their own products defective the second thing they'd call them ugly in a few decades or a few years later uh when when the U.S. landed a man on the moon, the next day in the New York Times, they simply had a picture of the Apollo moon landing, wrote the not the rover, the moon landing, 
uh, aircraft. And underneath it just said, it's ugly, but it gets you there, VW. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Tell us about the the Think Small ad. What and we're going to drop in. There's also a TV spot that goes along with that. But tell us about that about that that uh, Think Small ad. What was that about? What was that indicating? Well, I think the reason we remember the Think Small one was because it was the most meta, if you will. It spoke uh, more to what was going on in society. And Julian Koenig was saying, you know, late '50s, early '60s, everything in America was big. America was number one. We are number one. We're going to the moon. We have big houses. We've got uh, big refrigerators, big stoves. And this was a kind of quirky copywriter in New York who said, you know what? That's great. But there's actually virtues in thinking small. There's virtues in thrift. There's virtues in, 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 in downsizing. And that was what the whole ad was about. So it's followed a very similar layout. Two thirds is, um, is a picture. Interestingly, they shot the car. Uh, it's not in the middle. It's a, so imagine kind of a, a white kind of void. And then you see the small black bug. And it's not in the middle, but it's off to the corner in the left. It's a really small part of the page. And then it just says, think small. And the copy goes on to talk about how, you know, while it not, might not be the biggest, it might not fit, you know, 10 members of your family. There are some other advantages that come with an economical size, such as a small water bill, a small gas bill, uh, a small insurance bill. You'll never have to go and change the oil. And it keeps on going and talks about all the economies um, that, 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 that the VW can provide. For those who want to read the copy on the Think Small ad, I just, I just have it here in front of me. We'll post it on the website so you guys can, uh, can, can read it. Um, what about some of the TV spots? There were some really phenomenal and famous ones. Can you, um, which one sort of uh, struck you? And we'll drop it in here also. One was the famous, uh, it was talking about the reliability of the car and its ruggedness. You wouldn't think of it when you look at such a small car. Uh, but the headline and the concept was, uh, what car does the snowplow driver drive to get to the snowplow? Yeah, it's and arguably it, one of the most famous yeah. spots that they've ever that they've ever produced. Yeah, and with very little voiceover, uh, it's just you know it's just a bunch of shots. It shows it shows uh, what looks to be like a snowplow driver. It's very cold. Leave his house, jump in his VW. You don't really know who he is at the start. And then he drives to work, and then he parks the VW next to the snowplow. The snowplow turns on, and it passes the VW. How the man who drives a snowplow drives to the snowplow? This one drives a Volkswagen. Another one that's brilliant is, um, which really speaks because some of those, uh, some of those others f speak to functionality and about the vehicle being able to do the unexpected. But, but the, also in addition to that, I think another attribute they're trying to attach to the vehicle was that it was a smart alternative to sort of wasteful 
self-indulgence, so, which was sort of the, the representation of American cars. But there's a spot called Funeral, uh, where we see, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you see a funeral, you, you see a funeral procession, a bunch of cars uh, on their way to the cemetery, and the, the cemetery, and they're going down the highway, and then the um, what you're beginning to hear is the reading of the will. Uh, from the guy who has passed away, and he's talking about his various family members who you see driving different types of cars. And then ultimately, you get to uh, the final car, uh, which is the uh, VW Beetle. I'm actually Snavely, being of sound mind and body, to hereby bequeath the following. To my wife, Rose, who spent money like there was no tomorrow, I leave $100 and a calendar to my sons, Rodney and Victor, who spent every dime I ever gave them on fancy cars and fast women. I leave $50 in dimes to my business partner, Jules, whose only motto was spend, spend, spend. I leave nothing, nothing, nothing. And to my other friends and relatives who also never learned the value of a dollar, I leave a dollar. Finally, to my nephew Harold, who oft-times said, a penny saved is a penny earned, and who also oft-times said, gee, Uncle Max, it sure pays to own a Volkswagen. I leave my entire fortune of $100 billion. So those are those are some of the uh, some of the the ads that ran. There's, there's a whole bunch of them. We'll put them up on the website. But the other thing that's interesting is how the competition responds to this. Because when you look at the sales chart for VW, I, I got something. I'm not going to talk to specifics here, but I'll, it, it, it's it's um, you can see this growth chart that begins in the late 19. 19- fifties uh, and as you head into the sixties, the volume goes from below maybe thirty thousand units uh, to close to six hundred thousand units uh, by uh, by nineteen seventy uh, so things really uh, began to um, explode uh, yet on a small level but still significant um, but there was obviously i think this probably proved to a lot of manufacturers that there was a market for smaller vehicles. And those other brands begin to introduce other vehicles, and they begin to respond. What do we know about how they responded? Well, Detroit being Detroit, where it was originally dismissive and didn't do anything, but then I suppose once they saw their sales curves flatten out, they started realizing the merits and perhaps producing smaller cars for for families. So they started investigating producing smaller cars, but it was really the what dulled the impact of the, of the VW's rocket trajectory was actually the, the start, the beginning of the import of Asian cars. And Asian cars were kind of simple, reliable, and compact. And, and those cars really took off in America in the late 70s. Yeah, it really did. And it became sort of the, it, it became the compact car and vehicle market, which was fueled heavily from a lot of, from Honda, Toyota, <clears throat> Daihatsu, many other brands. And this was happening a lot in Europe because Europe had, had smaller cars for, for decades. Um, but it did begin to start that revolution. Things started to fizzle out for the Beetle. Uh, a volume dropped dramatically. And if you look at the sales of VW Beetle over uh, VW over time, you, you just see these peaks and valleys that seem to go in, in, in cycles over the decades. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, one of the things that came out of the Johannes Leonardo interview was this sort of this sort of 
platform that the brand uses and and this um this is a thread that goes back to that work in the uh, 1950s that started this all off and it's the idea that vw is for those frustrated with the status quo and the and, and i love that thought and i love the way they've they've framed it even tighter um which is uh, that vw drivers are drivers of change mm. And that's a really beautiful, simple way. And when you look back through the decades and the different peaks and valleys of its sales, there is always this sort of social movement that VW was able to insert itself into um, and at, at various decades. And we talk about it in the detail in the other episode. But drivers of change is such a, a, a wonderful way to frame it. So I think in, in sort of summing things up, I think there's the pragmatic issues that that the advertising had to deal with and dealt with well, but they did it in honest, clever, intelligent ways. And there was also the symbolic representation of what the brand needed to stand for, which was it was not self-indulgent, it was not wasteful, that it was sort of a, um, uh, a an expression of individualism in a sea of sameness. So, and that again was what Avis did too. It was taking a negative and beautifully twisting it into a positive, recognizing that there are people who want to be uh, represented or want to be associated and think of themselves differently than the mass market. And I think this is a, a brilliant example of that. Anything else you would add that we might have missed out on, Faisal? I think three things. One, they had they embraced really the the they embraced being uncomfortable with being unpopular. I think one of the things we kind of glossed yes. over was when when these ads initially launched, all the other ad ad agencies in Madison Avenue looked down on it. It didn't look like anything else out there. It was unpopular to do so. And so, if I think of you know about the world of brand and design these days, there's a certain kind of millennial aesthetic that is applied to most DTC brands. It's kind of pale colors. Uh, soft rounded hues motivational copy it is very hard to be unfashionable and to walk away with those things from those things but in doing so you find the power in a brand in its own voice so i think they were very comfortable being unpopular i think that was the first thing the second thing is that they respected the intelligence of the reader and uh we always at our agency we talk about you speak to the highest common denominator not the lowest and I think that it was almost like speaking between friends. And in fact, the copywriter, Julian Koenig, actually it was Bob Levinson. When he wrote copy, he would almost write it like a letter to his neighbor. And he said, dear Charlie, wrote the copy. And then he said, signed off saying, sincerely, Bob. Then he cut the top, cut the bottom, and the middle was the copy. So I think there was a <laughs> directness and there was a respect for the reader, which, which, was, um, which was really refreshing. And I think the last thing is they really found the truth in the product. They unlocked it. They went from the inside out. They unlocked the product's hidden advantage and then applied a whole bunch of other um, filters to it. And so for me, those are the three things. It is uh, great to have done this, Faisal. Thanks, man, for having you back on. We'll do more as we uh, as we go through this. Uh, for those who don't know, it's Faisal Siddiqui. He is founder, strategist, and co-host of this series. 
uh, his, uh, his firm is Creative Business Company in Toronto. And the next time we're on, I'm going to give you some shit about the fact that you have such a relatively generic name for your business. <laughs> yes. What the hell uh, is going on there? We'll talk <laughs> about that in the next episode. <laughs> okay, let's, let's set a date. Thanks, man. Uh, great having you on. Appreciate you being here. Thanks. Thank you so much for having us. And we'll see uh, everybody on the next episode.